It's really not fair, man. I mean, you know a performance is coming up, so you'd practice and you practice and you do your vocal exercises and you do the roar over and over again because you know you want to wow the people. And then the day comes and you do the roar and everyone laughs in your face. Oh, no, no. The other person did it way better. It's, it's so bullshit, man. Joe, I didn't, I didn't get out here to hear your thoughts about life at Godzilla polls, okay? Well, Libby... I have the soundboard here, and I'm the one editing the podcast. So you will listen to every damn word I have to say. Hello, and welcome to the OST Party. This is a podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and talk about movie soundtracks and have a rockin' good time. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Uh, here with me tonight, as always, is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cudmore. Libby, what is shaking? Look, I do a better Godzilla impersonation. The people have spoken, and they spoke right. Just because the people so, like you more than me doesn't mean that my Godzilla roar was any less valid. My nephew thought my Godzilla roar was good, so. And he's, he turned six, so he's really smart about these things. You really got to argue with a six-year-old? A child, Joe? He's a kid. Kids are stupid. <laughs> He said while he was wearing his Home Alone t-shirt. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, last time on the show, we talked about uh, Godzilla 98 in in the run-up to the release of the new Godzilla. And I guess we really can't start the show without uh, me doing a trip report from the la- the most recent Godzilla, which I just saw last night. Look, I just care about one thing. Did CCH Pounder yell at King Girdra? That's all Girdra, I need to know. the three-headed monster? Well, yes. Uh, if by three-headed monster you mean Ken Watanabe, Sally Hawkins, and Thomas Middleditch, yes, CCH Powder did yell at a three-headed monster. Yes, uh, she has one yeah. great scene of, of shouting at bureaucrats, and it's it's just Chef's kiss. It's great. I love her. She's my hero, and I love CCH Pounder uh, yelling at uh, bureaucrats. And uh, speaking of CCH Pounder, I got some good news. What's that? I have been brought on as the uh, co-host for the Shattered Shield podcast, where I will be uh, talking about the FX show, The Shield. Whoa! Which she starred on. I know. I'm really excited. Awesome! Congratulations! Yeah. Thank you. So you can you can find me over there uh, most weeks. Excellent. So, and doing this, this is great. I'm living my best podcast life. <laughs> Very good. All right. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, so lots of great stuff's been happening here at OST Party Headquarters. Libby's got a new gig. Uh, the new Godzilla is out, and I'm happy to report it is the dumbest, best movie of the summer. Avengers Endgame could eat shit. Um, <laughs> that's that's really all I wanted to come back and say was that Avengers Endgame can eat shit. Uh, okay. Godzilla being it. good or not is, is insubstantial. <laughs> we do have some uh, business to take care of from last week. Uh, the polls from the Godzilla episode. Uh, we had a couple of polls, uh, a couple of legitimate polls, mind you. <laughs> uh, the first one being uh, the best music video from Godzilla the album, uh, with 33% of the vote. Uh, Jamiroquai's Deeper Underground video wound up winning that poll, which it was a pretty good spread. So I, I feel like uh, 
pretty, most of the music videos from that album were fairly well received. Yeah, I I was kind of surprised. Uh, I think Deeper Underground is a better song than Come With Me, but I think Come With Me has a wilder video just because it's so truly insane. Yeah, and it was a close second with twenty eight percent of the vote, so it was it was up yeah. there. But like there was nothing, none of them were like runaway winners of that poll. Yeah, so it was it was a good spread. Um, we also had uh, a poll, and this one required you to listen to the episode, which I really appreciated. Everyone who voted, uh, we asked uh, how you got your copy of the Godzilla soundtrack free with my fifty percent. So they got theirs with a Fruitopia. Thirty three percent they got theirs with a tiny backpack, and seventeen percent got them with a pair of Jenkos in the giant pocket. Just hiding in the giant pocket, like. <laughs> yes, well, some people are still lost in their Jenko's pockets, never to emerge. We, we, we've sent team after team of spelunkers into the Jenko caverns, never to be seen again. Yes, well, it's tragic. Pour, pour out a Fruitopia for all those lost in their Jenko's. <laughs> so, but I think the most important poll is was actually it's our second poll uh where we asked who did a better godzilla impression and with 83 percent of the vote it was me i do the best godzilla impersonation all right i'm gonna let you have this one because we got other business to take care of (laughs) i will be angry i will be angry at you off podcast later on (laughs) <laughs> and in my personal time you got 17% of the vote yeah thank you Libby I only have one fan and her her name is Libby Cudmore so thank you I appreciate that <laughs> you're welcome see it was true I knew it I fucking knew it <laughs> alright so what are we this, what are we uh, playing today uh, this week we are sticking in 1998 to discuss uh, Adam Sandler's The Wedding Singer Ooh. which I feel like is uh, maybe the one Adam Sandler movie that most people can agree on is still pretty good. Yeah, it holds up. It's uh, it's very firmly rooted in its Adam Sandler 1998-ness, but there are parts of it that are still genuinely funny. And the soundtrack is amazing. And now one of the things, uh, one of the reasons we started this podcast was to talk about the the impacts of soundtracks on our lives as means of accessing the most music from the most artists uh, when CDs were cost prohibitive uh, and also when access may not have been as uh, readily available. For those of us who lived in small towns that didn't have, you know, a mall or a tower records to, to go to regularly, this one has so many great artists on it and a really wide range and so this soundtrack introduced me to so many bands that I still love to this day. Yeah, this was like right before the big sort of MP3 internet like music boom. So mm-hmm. it, like it was you were still able to like get like good greatest hits compilations and soundtrack compilations with lots of great artists on them. And not only did the Wedding Singer spawn one album, it spawned two. Yes, and one of the things that I really really like about this album other than again the you know, massive expansive music that it covers because it is, it's easy to fall back on like the kind of classic eighties, if you will, to just play girls just want to have fun. And you might think in the real kind of standard drugstore compilation, but this one, uh, I wouldn't say it digs deep, but it goes wide. Yeah. Um, and, and a couple of those like 
you know, uh, perennial 80s hits are on this album. But also it does get into things that I guess today would be considered a little more obscure or a little, uh, I guess, less popular 80s 80s songs. Yeah, or popular with sort of different different groups. But um, also because a lot of this, because Adam Sandler uh, plays a wedding singer named Robbie Hart, uh, it could include the versions that he sings and decides not to thank you thank you for giving us the original artists and not letting us have to listen to uh adam sandler sing uh you spin me round like a record (laughs) well you know that since they did two albums of just the hits i feel like we were denied a third album of the performances in the film there's a, a couple uh thinking of um jimmy moore singing which adam or uh Jimmy Moore, John Lovitz singing "Ladies' Night." Yes, yes. I would hire that guy right away. <laughs> or the uh, the or the wedding orchestra playing "Don't Stop Believing" is is actually <laughs> a really nice rendition, and I kind of want wish that were on a soundtrack somewhere. So, well, uh, only thing you can do, Joe, is get married and hire an orchestra. Working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Someday. <laughs> um. So. I'm going to give Steve Buscemi speech at your wedding. <laughs> Why can't you be more like your brother? Uh, Harold would never beat up his landlord. Oh, man. Before we really dig into the album, though, uh, I want to take you on a quick history lesson. Now, we've done this on the podcast before, but this is the first time that I actually thought up a name for this segment. Uh, we're going to take you to billboarding school for a minute. <laughs> where we're going to dive into the Billboard charts and look at how this album placed back in 1998. <clears throat> uh, so the Wedding Singer album hit, hit the Billboard charts February 22nd, 1998 at number 90. Now, you'll be surprised to know that another soundtrack entered the charts at number 27 that week. Libby, do you have any conceivable guess as to what the soundtrack might be? I have no clue. It's the soundtrack to Blues Brothers 2000. You've got to be shitting me. I am not shitting you. For a brief moment in 1998, Blues Brothers 2000 was the hotter ticket than The Wedding Singer. Ow. And uh, hold on, hold on. I, I just, I need a moment. <laughs> I don't even know what's on that soundtrack. Because honestly, that movie should have been illegal. It's a bunch of Dan Aykroyd talking about space aliens and singing bluegrass tunes. I don't fucking know. <laughs> I really hope you're not making that up. That's, no. I've actually, like, oh, that actually sounds really good. I mean, the alien part, probably, yeah. But uh, Dan Aykroyd doing blue, not bluegrass, blues, is totally true. They did do that. I oh will say, God. though, Blues Brothers 2000 did not last nearly as long as The Wedding Singer on the charts. It kind of came and went in three or four weeks. That's still three or four weeks too long. You people should be ashamed of yourselves. Yeah. Well, the second Who week. Who bought this? Show yourselves. Well, the second week, Wedding Singer jumped all the way up to 26. Which you would think, oh, great, they beat them by one by one uh, spot. Well, Blues Brothers 2000 jumped up to number 12 the second week. Oh, my, <laughs> oh my God, people. The next week, Wedding Singer broke into the top 10, and then Blues Brothers 2000 began its precipitous fall off the charts. Like, it was never seen again. Yeah, it took me a second to be like, wait, was Blues Brothers 2000 a real thing, or is he fucking with me? I am super duper not fucking with you. Like Blues Brothers 2000, they actually made a sequel to the Blues Brothers with John Goodman instead of John Belushi, and it's fucking terrible. And there's a child in it, as I recall, right? There's a, there's a child in it, yes. And if you want to know how how much better Blues Brothers 2000 is than The Wedding Singer, 
All I'm going to say is Blues Brothers 2000 got a Nintendo 64 game. Did the wedding singer? I think not. Oh my god. I don't know. Oh, I, I really oh just don't. God. So anyway, uh, Blues Brothers 2000, after like three weeks, gone from the charts. The Wedding Singer, however, hung around the top 10 for like 10 straight weeks. And it actually, in actuality, it was on the charts for, let's see here, 63 weeks un- nice. until May of 1999. Wow. And in the meantime, while it's kind of hanging around the bottom 100, Wedding Singer Volume 2 hits the charts and it lasts for like, uh, I think 30 weeks. We have, there's a good like half of a year where two Wedding Singer soundtracks are like ping ponging around the charts in 1998. It was kind of an amazing time. Yeah, we, we had it so good. And we yeah, threw we it really all did. Away. Hey, um, where was Godzilla 98 at this time? Uh, Godzilla 98, well, if you'll refer back to our, our previous episode, Godzilla 98 uh, in I think May and June of 98 was hanging around the top 10, but it was shut out of the top spots by like the Titanic soundtrack, the City of Angels soundtrack, and I think the Armageddon soundtrack. It was a wild time for soundtracks in 1998. Absolutely, it was. Bear in mind, like most of the time that the Wedding Singer was in the top 10, Titanic was still number one. That's crazy. And actually, I for some reason, I think in my head, I didn't really even pay attention to the fact that it was 1998 until like last night i think in my head i thought it was around like 97 so the we're we're not just stuck in 1998 on purpose this was a uh it was a complete mistake no this this really was like a happy accident oh yeah this completely was like the golden age of movie soundtracks and so i think it's fair that we stick around the late 90s for a little while because that's where all the good stuff is more or less and also the really bad stuff so yeah absolutely we're going to talk about City of Angels someday, so everybody get your prom dress out. Oh, yeah. Last billboard fact I will hit you with. The week that The Wedding Singer finally fell off the charts, do you know what the number one soundtrack in America was? I feel like this is going to hurt. The Matrix. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my God. There is always more, and it's always worse. Okay, so let's jump into uh, The Wedding Singer. So, Libby, real quick, what is The Wedding Singer? All right. So, The Wedding Singer follows the uh, exploits of Wedding Singer Robbie Hart, who is left at the altar by his fiance Linda, but in the meantime, starts to fall for the very sweet Julia, who's set to marry a complete cad. And the two of them start to fall in love. Julia, is co- of course, is played by the adorable Drew Barrymore. And her and Robbie fall in love. And it's adorable. And it's such a sweet little movie. And I love it. Aww. And the other thing to note is that it does take place in 1985, which kind of gives them free reign to play as many 80s hits as they could possibly license. And they license a fuck ton of them. Absolutely they do. So, um... I I realized in watching this that the last two movies I've chosen have been in the very specific genre of very sweet girl about to marry a total douchewad and gets sort of stolen away by someone adorable. Yeah, I feel like there's some un- unfinished business going on there, but I, I'm not the one to, you know, bring to like, get into that. <laughs> I think when I got into this movie, I was I was dating... Our, you know, Aaron, who has become as much of a character on this podcast, and he wasn't a douche so much as he just, like, wasn't the dude for me. But so, like, wanting to be swept away by a, a 
you know, really cute guy in the case of Earth Girls Are Easy and guy with good taste in music in the case of The Wedding Singer. These things sort of uh, sort of unite in, in my brain. And that that's my apparently my favorite genre of rom-com. So feel free to write in with recommendations. Yeah, and, and that's fine. You know, that, that's why they make these rom-coms because somebody out there, you know, really loves them. And, he, and Adam Sandler, forever looking for a quick buck, knows uh, how to, I don't know. He knows, Adam Sandler knows where his uh, checks are signed. Yeah, and this was actually, it was written by Tim Harley, who wrote a lot of other Adam Sandler movies. He's yeah. sort of his... Uh, his. And this is like a, a 100% like Happy Madison like cast and crew production. Like a lot Which of is... Sandler regulars keep... Like, a lot of Sandler regulars are in this movie. It's kind of like the, the, the Adam Sandler show here. Yeah, and um, he wrote... Uh, he wrote for Saturday Night Live. He wrote Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, The Waterboy, Big Daddy, Little Nicky, Mr. Deeds, Bedtime Stories, Grown Ups 2, Pixels, and The Ridiculous Six. Good Lord. On the other hand, what I like about this movie is, although it is very clearly an Adam Sandler joint, it doesn't have the feel of Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. It's a lot sweeter. And yeah. genuinely so. Not saccharine the way that um like 51st dates was and it it stays yeah. away from a lot of the meanness not all of it i th- I, th- I think a big part of that is the fact that they realized pretty quickly that to make this movie work uh julia uh drew barrymore's character was going to have to be like a full character in the story and not just the girl you know yeah so the, it and... had to revolve as much around her as it did Adam Sandler. So they were able to kind of split the difference there. Put a little bit of the Sandler kind of raunchy goofiness in there, but also bring in, uh, I guess, a more, I don't want to like start typecasting uh, Drew Barrymore, but like earn a sweetness into the story. And it, it really works. It actually works a lot better than I was expecting it to. Like, I, I've seen this yeah. before, by the way, but like I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it was funny because I've always, always loved this movie. And I realized that, earlier this year ian had never seen it he he and i have been together for 15 years and i'd never shown him the wedding singer and i was fully expecting him to hate it he's like oh that was actually really really cute it's like if you feel good after you watch it and even though there are parts of it that are so silly and so ridiculous and and transparent even in the in the writing but you still feel really good after you watch, it's like eating ice cream. Like, is it the best thing for you? No, but you feel good when you eat it. Yeah, like I don't think a lot of the characters are all. A lot of the dialogue, I rather, is well written. I think it's kind of pretty clunky as far as like Adam Sandler goes. But the the cast is so good, and they're just so on their game that they yeah. really they really make it work. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you, should we get into the uh, the soundtrack? Yeah, definitely. How do we start this? Because there's a lot of ground to cover here. Well, okay, let's just go ahead and, and uh, uh, open the film. It's 1985. It's like Ridgefield, Illinois, I think is, is where it takes place. Robbie Hart is the wedding singer at a, at a wedding, and there he, we open on him singing uh, You Spin Me. Right, right. What's the title of the song? You Spin Me? You Spin Me Round, uh, parentheses, like a record, performed like a record. by Dead or Alive. Perf- performed by Adam Sandler, uh, yes. singing Dead or Alive. And uh, this song is... I don't know. It kind of gives you a sense of that he's he's not really like, well equipped to sing a song like this, but he does it anyway because that's the that's the job of a wedding singer. Like 
This is such a great, like, nightclub song. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily what you think of when you think of a wedding. I've never been to a wedding in 1985. I was two. But, um... This is more for nightclubs. I actually, they used to play this a lot at a nightclub I went to in the early aughts in New York City. They would play this on, it wasn't, it was called um, Corrosion was the name of the the party Mm -hmm. every weekend. And it was like dark 80s. So they'd play uh, Dead or Alive, Depeche Mode, uh, The Smiths, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure. Yeah. So, um, and this one is actually included on the second album. Oh, okay, yeah. And yeah, I, I figure what we're going to do tonight on the show is we're going to mostly focus on the first, the, the original soundtrack, and then uh, there, there's so much music to talk about that we'll talk about a lot of it, but I think we're going to focus on uh, the first soundtrack that they put out. As he's singing, did you notice, um, it, you know, because there are all the shots of people dancing, the groomsmen, they're dancing like the wolves in Cool World. I didn't notice that, Just- no. <laughs> That was just like something, I don't think it's intentional, but like just the way that they're dancing sort of in a straight line, like just shoulders, they just reminded me of the wolves in the uh, the nightclub in Cool Oh, World. the way they're just like bobbing up and down and not actually dancing? Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Guess what? This isn't the first Cool World reference you're going to have tonight, so strap in, folks. Hell yeah. All right. <laughs> so then- um, um, Before we get to the uh, the next song- I just want to give a shout out to the greatest wedding speech in history. <laughs> Performed by Steve Buscemi, an absolutely like blotto drunk Steve Buscemi. <laughs> it's amazing. It's the greatest. I, I kind of, I'm glad that nobody did this at my wedding, but I'm also kind of sad that nobody did this at my wedding because this is amazing. Well, all I can say, Libby, is that I'm not married yet, so if you want to pull a real coup, I got an idea for you. Yes! <laughs> One day. One day. But yeah, so Steve Buscemi gives this horrible, drunken, amazing performance of a, of a, a best man speech, and he's kind of shunted off stage. And Robbie, He really is the best damn guitar player in the whole world. He really is. Like, there's no question. There's no question. Yeah, self-taught. Eddie, Eddie Van Halen can, can eat shit. <laughs> I'm, this is the episode where I'm going to say a lot of people are going to eat shit, starting yeah, with the starting with Avengers Endgame. And now that I've said it three times, I feel like I can stop. No, never, <laughs> never. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Robbie and Steve Buscemi kind of get at, off the stage and, and away from the crowd, and Robbie asks uh, his backup performer George to take over. George is played by Alexis Arquette doing kind of a boy George impression, but not really. And yeah, I mean, it's still that very 80s uh, new romantic uh, gender is a construct mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. look with the ruffled shirt, the long hair, the very, the very feminine makeup. But it's also like a, a very late 90s sort of joke of just like, oh, hey, that person looks like boy George. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's one of the things this movie can't resist that kind of I hesitate to use the word dramatic irony because that's a little lofty for what these kind of movies do where it's like oh we recognize that as like boy George that's the joke or later um later Glenn brings a CD player whoa what's that it's the 80s we don't know yeah it's like the, the the weird like reference humor 
Like, oh, I yeah. get that because I know what the 80s is. Yeah, like they don't know, but I do. Oh, it's so, gonna be. I'm so smart. It's gonna be huge one day. Get it? Or like, yeah. oh, uh, what's her face is playing with a Rubik's cube and she throws it away and says, oh, no one's ever gonna finish this. Yeah, uh-huh. it's like okay, we get it. It's the yeah. fucking eighties. Move get it, it along, George Cl- or move it along, Ernest Klein. I was just gonna say, Ready Player One stole like its entire tech. Like, use this movie as a textbook. Oh boy. Let's not get into that. Uh, once Robbie and the the best damn guitar player in the world get off stage, uh, <laughs> George is a, is asked to, to take over, and George perfor- starts performing uh, Culture Club's "Do You Really Want to Hurt Me?" And we're not going to put that version in here. We're going to actually play the original. Let's take a listen. Do you really want to hurt me? Do you really want to? Unlike George's version, uh, Boy George actually knows how to finish the song. <laughs> yeah. Because George doesn't know all the words, and it's the only song he knows. Yeah, once he gets to a certain point in the song, he just kind of starts over and keeps going. <laughs> which is <laughs> which is actually a great joke. Like, th- this movie could have made the joke, like, oh, look at this, you know, weirdo on stage. But instead, the joke is, this person only knows one song, and they're going to play it over and over again. <laughs> And there's a scene later at a bar mitzvah where George takes over. He looks around and he starts in on, do you really want to hurt me by Culture Club? Oh, I, To the I, end of the film, he only knows one song. Mm-mm-mm. It's, so, it's such a good joke, though. Yeah. And not to say that the song is like a joke, because it's not. It's actually a really good song. I prefer Karma Chameleon, but um, Culture Club is great anyway. So yeah. this, this one's still really good. Yeah. As Robbie gets dumped at the altar, uh, there's a symphonic rendition of Journey's Don't Stop Believing," which is also an extremely 80s thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Linda, I think, when you see her and her weird 80s hair, she kind of looks like what I think I imagined I would look like as an adult, like as a child. <laughs> I was like, that's what I... And I look at her, I'm like... I kind of still wish my hair looked like that. Mm. I don't know why her sort of um, her whole look is like the the hot girl in every eighties music video. Yeah, that kind of Chrissy Hind sort of like tough but hot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like yeah. I'm kind of here for it, but also really scared of looking like a chick in a Van Halen video. But yeah, like I I, I really wish that the the, or- the that orchestral like version of Don't Stop Believing were on some kind of release because that's it turns out that's the only version of Don't Stop Believing I can stand. That's that's fair. That song is so... I used to love that song. It's just now, if it comes on, I'm like, that's it, we're leaving. Pay the bar tab, we're out. If you say you like Don't Stop Believing in 2019, you're either 60 years old or a liar. Or you're like 17. Like, have you guys ever... This happens at the teen center every so often. Uh, the teen center my husband works at. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, do you know this song? He's like, yeah, that song's from like... Yeah. Have you I, I know seen don't Glee? Oh my god! Yeah, and everyone knows the best. Uh, the best journey song is uh, "Wheel in the Sky." Yes, that's correct. No, it's <laughs> only the young, and it's on the Vision Quest soundtrack. Oh, okay. That song is amazing, and Vision Quest is a movie that I have not seen, but I know that Matthew Modine is shirtless in it, so it's my favorite movie. Mm. It's right up there with uh, Full Metal Jacket. 
Which I, I also haven't seen. I don't know. He might not be shirtless in it. I don't know. I don't know, but that doesn't have Journey on the soundtrack or Madonna or the best Berlin song, as we discussed in our Top Gun episode. This is true. This is very true. Uh, so, yeah, Robbie gets dumped at the altar by his fiancée, Linda. She decides that she doesn't want to be married to a wedding singer. She wanted to be married to a rock star, and Robbie is not a rock star. And in all fairness, would you really want to be married to Adam Sandler? I mean... If you looked like Linda? Fair point, you know? I mean, I'm not going to say that she's not wrong, but also, like... Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! How do you wake up think? How do you think, like, yeah, that guy was going to become a rock star? Yeah, for real. Well, Did we you don't... hear his version of right Ra- of You Spin Me Round Like a Record? Did you hear it? It's oh, terrible. He sucks. I, absolutely, yeah. So that makes it makes me wonder, like, what was what did Robbie look like six years before this movie? Like Robbie as a rock star and rock star, Jesus, <laughs> Robbie as a rock star in 1979. Like, what With did his that look like? Pants and uh, his silk shirt unbuttoned, licking mm-hmm. the microphone like David Lee Roth, which is the most like off-putting thing I have ever heard. Ugh. No, it's just off-putting. Barf. Thank you. Right before when Linda comes by to say that she's breaking up, um, Billy Idol's White Wedding is playing on the uh, on the TV. It's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Very quickly on um, on White Wedding, which appears on the first. Uh, wedding singer album and will become important as we discuss later on mm-hmm. I ki- I love Billy Idol like unironically love Billy Idol the song rules and I kind of wish I'd played it at my own wedding even though it's not a wedding song it's about how he shouldn't get married and kind of trying to stop his sister's wedding um, but it still rules and is awesome oh yeah I mean who does honestly who doesn't like Billy Idol like really oh yeah you know, no one is going to talk to Billy Idol that way. Absolutely no one is going to talk to Billy Idol that way. We will talk about that in a bit. <laughs> uh, but hey. did you notice the uh, the bride on the top of the cake looks like Julia? Oh, yeah. It's like a blonde bride, isn't it? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And with the little short hair. Yeah, yeah. That's called foreshadowing, bitch. Okay. Well, the next song, um, we hear uh, Julia listening to her uh, headphones, singing 99 Luftballoons by yes. Nina. This does not appear on any soundtrack. That's a shame. It is. So, um, this is, one of, this is a great This song. is one of the better songs in the film, I think, if you ask me. Um, it's not one that I particularly love. I'm <laughs> sort of like, because to me, this is a little, it's a little like 80s greatest hit. Maybe, and maybe I'm just kind of more in, see, maybe my, maybe I'm just in a, like, 80s nuclear panic kind of phase right now, and that's the kind I of song can't that appeals why. to me. can't imagine why. Jeez, I don't know. Maybe because I just watched 80s nuclear panic fucking destroy a dragon. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I like this song, and yeah, I apparently am I just feel it's alone. one we've heard probably a million times. It has to have been on some other soundtrack we've covered, right? Uh, not that we've covered, but likely will. Yeah, like it's going to pop up again at some point. From there, uh, we hear a few minutes of musical youths past the duchy in yes. Sammy's car. That is on soundtrack number one. He goes into Robbie's basement to kind of cheer him up. And Robbie is playing 
appropriately, the cure is Boys Don't Cry. Now, uh, Boys Don't Cry doesn't appear on the soundtrack, but we'll talk about the cure uh, coming up in a bit. Yeah. It's on the second soundtrack, though, isn't it? No, it is on neither soundtrack. Wow. Okay. The soundtrack is like jazz. It's all about the songs that aren't on the soundtrack. Yeah, it is. Um, I kind of like that Sammy just like gets into bed with him. It's very sweet. And it there's is. a lot There's a lot in this movie that while Sammy is disgusting and tries to sleep with everyone and is just creepy and gross, he makes a couple good points. And there's a couple really nice scenes of male bonding of uh non-sexual male intimacy mm-hmm. and of of male fragility and not in the sense of like a man's fragile ego but in showcasing that vulnerability yeah and and i think that scene is a really good uh like illustrator of that because like he he climbs into the bed with robbie and like the first thing they talk about is how how plush the sheets are and how nice uh robbie's laundry job is and it's just kind of a, yeah. a, a nice real moment where like you know two guys can talk about doing laundry without talking about what's really on their minds and it's still kind of sweet yeah i mean he immediately goes into like hitting on bridesmaids yeah and kind of kind of ruins the moment but it's not out of character for him mm-hmm. so so you kind of like, go with it like his whole thing is like man I'm, I'm just here to get you laid and any other scene that would that would feel like wrong but but like you can kind of tell he just wants to help his friend and he's not just trying to be a creep you know yeah he's somewhat the, of a creep but I mean, he's somewhat but it's he, okay. like, th- like it's it's kind of played <laughs> off as as i don't want to say like all oh, boys being boys but like you can tell he's not just being a creep by saying he like actually try is trying to help robbie out yeah in in a way that he knows how which is by being a creep but that's like it's his love language exactly exactly (laughs) like it's it's the only way he knows how to communicate so robbie does go to perform at this wedding uh he performs uh holiday Mm -hmm. by madonna uh that song is on the second album and kind of unfortunately it's not the robbie version can we play a few minutes of the robbie version uh yeah i'll I'll put that in here right now If we took a holiday, took some time to celebrate, just one day out of life, it would be, it would be so nice, everybody spread the word, I live in my sister's basement. It's, it's hysterical. (laughs) <laughs> and this scene is this scene is a very Adam Sandler scene, and uh, not not in a great way, but it's it's short enough, and it's actually I kind of hate myself for thinking this scene is funny. Yeah, it's kind of hard to watch almost. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't aged well, and what happens is, um, he gets on the microphone and is talking about all of the people who don't deserve, who aren't going to find love. Let's put that sound clip in. But the worst thing is that me, fatty, sideburns lady, and the mutants over at table nine, will never ever find a way to better the situation. Because apparently we have absolutely nothing to offer. 
the opposite sex. Then goes into singing Jay Giles' band, Love Stinks. Where he goes uh, where he goes into just a full-blown meltdown. Yes, and ends up getting beaten up by the groom's father. Yes. But this scene, his, his rendition of Love Stinks is hysterical. It's very funny, it's well played, and all the people that he's made fun of join in. And while I don't like that he's making fun of... Um, of someone for their weight for and for their looks. The fact that they get to join in and sing, they get to sing the love stinks part, it feels almost like... It takes, it takes some of the sting out of it. Yeah, because they're finally getting, like, their moment. Because they're clearly sitting at this wedding being frustrated. Yeah. And so for them to sort of get their shining moment... You know, unfortunately, it's sort of at the expense of who they are as people, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it's not a progressive scene, but it's certainly not the worst we've seen from Adam Sandler. No, Small like victories, it, I guess. For, for the worst we've seen out of Adam Sandler, see also Eight Crazy Nights. <sighs> or the Ridiculous Six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put a link to the Eight Crazy Nights uh, Christmas Creeps episode in our show notes because you and I go go into great depth about that. Oh yes, so we'll, it's we'll a, definitely it's a fun episode. We'll definitely, and it's also kind there. of a soundtrack. It is. Not I mean, that's that, but that, uh, that was kind of like sort of the pilot episode for this, really. Yeah, and we took a steaming shit on Adam Sandler. So, <laughs> um. This kind of, this is the kind of thing these like wedding fails. I love reading wedding fails like on BuzzFeed. Yeah. I am so glad that none of this happened at my wedding. Oh my god. <laughs> like it's funny when it happens to other people. Mhm. Not funny when it happens to you. So, um to everyone whose wedding fail I've read about on BuzzFeed, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, like the the so handful cool. of weddings that I've been in, like no- nothing like that has ever happened. So, I don't no, have the any- AC broke at my wedding Ooh. and but we just opened the doors yeah it was so, fine it was a little it was a little hot but like whatever people no, took off their jackets nothing that you, no, that people are going to tell stories about for years to come well i guess well, you just did well yeah and one girl showed up in a dress that was shall we say peach colored it matched her skin quite perfectly so oh, wow. at, like out of the corner of your eye like is that girl nude <laughs> oh man everybody was looking at her and not the bride huh that's a shame no, they sort of like, oh, she's not nude, and sort of went back to looking at me. I was so, I was, I was an extremely gorgeous bride. I just want to put that up. I'll, I'll, I'll bet so. But you know, like everybody, oh, everybody looked once. Yeah, everybody, they did, and uh, for weeks afterwards, people were like, who is the nude girl? Like, oh, I was, <laughs> I was Ian's friend. Uh, whoops. So we all had a good laugh. Yeah, that's that sounds that sounds fun. But we jump into uh, our next song. Actually, is a return of an old favorite here on OST Party. Yeah, uh, we hear uh, the Thompson Twins' "Hold Me Now" on the so, on the show. Much better known. It's a song they're they're uh, more known for than "Play with Me" from the Cool World soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm gonna go to bat for uh, "Play with Me" as the better song. Yeah, I kind of have to agree with you. Like "Hold Me Now" is a fine song. It's a little little slow for my taste. It's a little uh, subdued, but uh, it's not bad. And it's also just, again, one of those, like, very standard 80s songs. Mm-hmm. You're just sort of like, meh. Like, I, I, mean, c- on- I can see the Time Life commercial in my head with all the songs, like, scrolling up. And Hold Me Now is definitely one of them. I, honestly, I don't even remember um, what scene this movie's or this song is in. 
Yeah, I just know that it comes after Robbie has lost his shit at this wedding, and then uh, it's before Julia's engagement party because this like, this is the scene where Robbie finds out Julia got engaged. Yes, and um, at the engagement party is another sort of like whatever eighties uh, hit, which is "Too Shy" by uh, I've not I I've never pronounced this live. So is it Kagajuju? <laughs> I think it's Kajagugu. Which isn't any better. So, uh, yeah, it's Too Shy by Lady Gaga. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. He's playing the engagement party. Um, I love that she's like, oh, we're planning a wedding in three months. Like, (laughs) and mine took a year. Right, because he's all up, like, her her fiancé is all about, let's get married in Vegas and do it quick. And she wants, like, the big fancy family wedding. And he yeah. finally relents and says, okay, if it's important to you, we'll do the big wedding. And then he completely shunts off all the responsibility onto her because he's a big tool. Yeah. So in case you haven't realized by now that like he's a tool and she's going to end up with Adam Sandler, like, congratulations. I mean, it's, it's a really good like visual shorthand that he's a tool because he is never not dressed like Don Johnson from Miami Vice. Yeah, and I think later when she's getting in his car at one point, is that the Miami Vice theme like playing in the car? I I think it is. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's hysterical. But um, yeah, also playing in this scene is Lionel Richie's All Night Long. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, another fine '80s song. Not bad. Not uh, not remarkable. I guess. I don't know how do you and also not on the soundtrack. That's true. Too Shy by Nicolas Cage is on the uh, second soundtrack, though. So Yes, it's actually track one. So Yeah. yeah. I want to say the second soundtrack, uh, you know, as, as we're going through this, the second soundtrack has a lot of the really, really, really good stuff. It's a lot of the kind of like weirder, deeper tracks. So, mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel like maybe the reason they did it this way is like the first soundtrack might have been the one they could have get the rights to the easiest. And then once it took off, they had money to license everything else and make another soundtrack. Maybe. Or people are just like, give us more. We love the wedding singer. Our yeah. only other choice is Armageddon. <laughs> oh, man. Armageddon. It why? can't be contained. <laughs> oh, we'll get to it. So then Robbie and Julia have this uh, uh, this uh, sad scene where now that Robbie's not doing the, uh, the, bar- the, wedding, si- the wedding singer circuit anymore, uh, you know, they won't get to hang out at work as much. And then Robbie's like, well, there are other ways, there are other events that we can see each other at because like they work at like the big banquet hall together but robbie's not going to do the weddings anymore but uh that does leave the door open for robbie singing at a bar mitzvah yeah and i want to say one of the things i do love about adam sandler movies is um scenes of jewish joy yeah yeah i really i like that growing up jewish um you know all your everything you learn about the Jewish experience in school is always like based around the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and so to to be exposed to scenes of Jewish life and of of Jewish joy, because you're too young to see Woody Allen movies. <laughs> um, not not too young to date Woody Allen apparently, but uh, hey, Woody Allen joke. <laughs> I'm a '90s comedian. Awesome. No, I'm, because my experience uh, growing up Jewish was one of joy mm-hmm. and family gatherings. And, and so to see, you know, this fun scene at the, the bar mitzvah where he has uh, Julia dance with a kid who was rejected by, uh, by a girl 
because he's not cool enough so to have you know adorable Drew Barrymore dance with him mm. is um is a nice scene and even um because he he puts his hands on her butt or as uh Adam Sandler calls it her tushy yeah uh which is a word we hear a lot in Eight Crazy Nights yeah, yeah oh yeah um, you're absolutely right. I kind of like, like the part of me that is post me too would be like super creeped out by a kid touching my butt. But when everybody's touching everybody's butt, like Tina Belcher's butt loose, there's something yeah. kind of sweet about it. Because Robbie isn't just going to like throw Julia to the, the, the teenage wolves here. Like once, once Julia is, sing- is dancing with this kid, Robbie gets into the crowd and he starts dancing with a girl and puts her hands on his his butt and then everyone's dancing and everyone's touching butts and it's it's a very inclusive scene uh the kind the kind of stuff you see like in i guess a lot of adam sandler movies like i'm thinking of billy madison where he pulls the prank where uh, where uh he he quote unquote pees his pants so everybody laughs at him instead of the kid that did pee his pants yeah and then everyone so. pees their pants yeah and Ugh. it's kind of because it's not played and i think the fact that he's like are you gonna tell glenn about that that kid squeezing your tush yeah it's not played to be necessarily like sexual it's playful yeah it's it's and, very it i'm sorry oh i was gonna say it, it while we're bringing our sort of like that's you know keep your hands to yourself it, you know which is a natural reaction i wouldn't advise you know, letting some 11-year-old squeeze your butt at a, a bar mitzvah. Um, being able to watch it on screen and and recognizing that it's meant to be playful. You see Sammy and the cook, mm-hmm. and they're dancing with their hands on each other's butts. Um, and that that's not played for a joke, like, ha-ha, Sammy's gay, it's the 80s, we can make gay jokes. Again, yeah, it, it is inclusive, and it, it's a weird, it becomes this weirdly sweet scene from something that is is somewhat gross. Yeah, it's another example of a, a joke in this movie where I'm not sure how to read it because like on the one hand, yeah, it's kind of in poor taste, but on the other hand, they take enough of the teeth out of it that it's kind of sweet and innocent and how can you be mad at it really? Yeah. So, um very quickly, we've got um as they're wrapping up, we've got All I Can Do by the Cars playing, mm-hmm. not on the soundtrack. And then we get to perhaps the greatest use of music in the entire film. In this or any film. <laughs> Let's just, you know what? It needs no introduction. Let's just go to a clip. Romantic lady. Single baby. Mm, sophisticated mama. Come on, you disco lady. Say me that mama. Yes, it's lady. This is my friend Courtney and I used to do this bit, and it would just like crack us up. Just I don't even like one of us would just be like, "Well, where are you gonna find? Well, good luck finding a DJ who can move and shake like this." And we do the little <laughs> dance. It used to just crack us up. Not content to just do this joke once in in Happy Madison's next movie, they brought it back. Have you ever seen really? Little Nicky? I have not. It is a terrible, terrible film, and no one should ever watch it, but it does open with John Lovitz playing Ladies' Night while he is uh, playing a peeping Tom watching a woman undress in her w- out her window. 
I think also I was reading somewhere that um, that he comes back on the Goldbergs. Really? You see Jimmy Moore on the Goldbergs. Oh my god. I have not watched the scene, but I was I was reading about it while looking for a gift to send you. Oh man. Yeah, that's I'm gonna have to look into this now because I'm not really that well versed on the Goldbergs, but uh yeah, I we we'd need more Jimmy Moore in our lives, really. Honestly, I would like a sitcom that's just about Jimmy Moore. We need like the wedding singer too, but it's just about Jimmy Moore. I'm just sad that John Lovitz or that sorry, that uh, Jimmy Moore couldn't perform at my wedding. Because I just I couldn't find a DJ who could move and shake like that. Mm-mm. And I'm and, I, and I'm sure you 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 interviewed all of them and made them dance. I did every single one of them. <sighs> what a shame! What a shame! What a None shame! None of them played Ladies Night either. <laughs> did you request it? No, <laughs> because what was the point if he wasn't going to sing it? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so also in this scene, uh, Julia asks Robbie to sing a song for her that he had written. And he admits to her that he wrote half of it before his big breakup and then the other half after his big breakup. Uh, And the song is titled Somebody Kill Me. It is on the soundtrack. So let's take a listen. All alone, tears running constantly. With this um, is the uh, the sound clip uh, where she asks, "Have you written anything lately?" It's the only um, sound clip on the on the soundtrack. Yeah, there's there's a clip before this, and then a clip after. There's a clip after the "Somebody Kill Me" song, where uh, his his brother in laws or I guess his nephew, says, uh, "You're going to the mental institution." Yeah, <laughs> um, I want to say this. Uh, this is a very good Cure song. It's a really it is actually yeah he he admits that he had been listening to a lot of Cure while he wrote this song and so, it, it kind of bears that out it's very uh, Robert Smith yeah but like and I mean that in in a really good way so oh, yeah, I'm yeah. kind of surprised um, that Boys Don't Cry was wasn't included on the soundtrack uh, which would have been the second time the Cure would appear on OST Party yeah and i this is the kind of era uh of the cure that i like better than burn is more like uh boys don't cry and mm-hmm. somebody kill me but uh if robert smith who if you see in his performance at the rock and roll hall of fame his interview on the on the carpet is so fucking sweet and delightful he's so charming i really feel like he should bust this one out uh they're touring this year and I think it would be great if he played, if he just like opened with somebody kill me, please. <laughs> I feel like that would be the most adorable thing ever. Do it. I don't know if Adam Sandler performs anymore, but does he ever play this song live? I have no idea. He didn't in his um, his most recent special, which have you seen? No, I haven't. It's actually, it's, it's really, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's so funny that you're like, you're mad. Because you were all set to break up with him and just be like, fuck you, dude. And it's actually, it's, it's quite, I mean, it, it's not all funny. But he does a, a song about Chris Farley that will make you cry. Oh, yeah. You've told me about that before. I don't know that, yeah. I, I don't know that I'm ready for that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. But um, it's sort of like Morrissey's California Sun. Mm. Only Adam Sandler isn't a racist. But it's, it's good. And you're just like, why? I was done with you, man. Why are you good? <laughs> Why are you doing this to me? You know, like, our constant refrain is that this is kind of the movie 
like the last movie Adam Sandler really tried on. Mm-hmm. And like it's it's kind of true, but like Adam Sandler does still try occasionally, and I guess that's uh, yeah. yeah. And that's Damn. it's hard because you don't know you don't know what you're gonna get. Yeah, you don't know when you're gonna it's get like just... a game Adam Sandler or lazy hungover Adam Sandler. Um, Rob Schneider's not in this movie. He's not. You know I, that had never occurred to me until just now. His I... absence is keenly felt in that this is enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay. jumping jumping ahead. Uh, now I for the for this next song, all the only note that I wrote was ice cream parlor. I don't know what happens at the ice cream parlor, so I'm help, hoping you will remember. Yeah, uh, every little thing she does is magic is playing. Well, yes, but specifically, who is at the ice cream parlor and why? Oh, right, because they're they're testing out. Um... No, that's the next scene. No, they're Shit, just having right. ice cream. Um, and he's sort of talking about they're talking about the one. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, Me- uh, meanwhile, every little thing she does is magic is playing. Uh, so let's smash that button. <laughs> my favorite police song and i know that's a little bit of a cliche because this is a fucking amazing song but this might have been one of my sort of more formal introductions to the police mm-hmm. yeah this is one that i think a lot of people have heard like first or, yeah and it's because yeah. it's so good and it's so sweet and it's majestic and it's it's a, it's police enough where if you listen to if you go back and you listen to everything else mm-hmm. um you sort of you it doesn't seem like such a departure that you're sort of like wow why doesn't everything why does nothing else sound like every little thing she does is magic Mm -hmm. yeah because a lot of like early police has that kind of like faux reggae kind of sound to it and Mm -hmm. this one this one still has a little bit of that but i think they're trying for something a little more like mainstream pop and i think it works really well like it's a remarkably well composed song yeah, and it has piano, which is not real common. Um, this one's yeah. off of Ghost in the Machine. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's such a beautiful love song. It really, that's what it feels like to be in love. Yeah, and it's also like unabashedly dorky too, which is also like mm-hmm. what it feels like to be in love. Yeah. Like you feel like a dork saying these things, but you know what? They're true. Yeah, this song actually um, shows up in, it's it's used uh, to, as as a, as a kind of soundtrack effect in uh, my novel, The Big Rewind. Oh, yeah. So this nice. appears on a, a tape in that. Yeah. So, uh, which you can find on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. I heartily recommend it. Yes. Um, and now we get to the, uh, we get to the montage. Every wedding movie has to have one. Yes. And you know why? Because this part is the fun part of wedding. Tasting cakes, trying on dresses. It's the most fun part. I have a friend getting married soon. And like in my head, I can already hear Holland Oates, you make my dreams come true. And I'm so looking forward to doing the cake tasting, the the wedding dress try on. I think I'm looking forward to it more than she is. <laughs> well, because so, for her, it's I, work. For she, you, it's like a little vacation. Well, I know, and it's like, yay, I got to just play dress up with my friend. She's like, I'm probably just going to get my dress online. Like, no! <laughs> Go try on dresses. 
So I'm just like, I don't know, like texting her, like, I found this dress. So you're legally required so to try much. on three wrong dresses so that you, so that Libby can shake her head at them. So before you can find the one dress that's actually good, and then Libby will clap her hands, and that'll be yes. that. And Hall and Oates will be playing. And again, uh, this is my favorite Hall and Oates song. Like, so many of my favorite songs. This soundtrack is so defining. And actually, as, as I'm writing all these down, I'm like, yep, I've got Ghost in the Machine on vinyl. Yep, I've got, uh, I'm not, I don't remember what Hall and Oates that's on. I think I've got it on, like, a compilation and then the other. Um, like, yep, The Cure. This, like, I have so many of these. I've got the Psychedelic Furs. Uh, I just, I have a ton of these albums. And this awakened so many, like, fantastic artists for me and actually we're going to get to a big one next so but um you make my dreams is such a good it's right up there with like your kisses on my list just mm-hmm. pure happiness oh yeah oh. You, you were saying earlier how how this is such a formative like soundtrack of of like discoveries of artists like like classic 80s artists and classic 80s songs and the one like note that I wrote for myself, and this is not at all meant to be disparaging. This is absolutely true. If you want a good example of what VH1 looked like in the late 90s, just watch this movie because it was all like, you know, 80s throwback stuff before that all kind of became terrible and cliched and awful. And it was like just genuine, like, this is a huge collection of artists and we can appreciate them all at the same time. Yeah. And actually, what's kind of interesting is because right now we're in this big 80s throwback. We're starting, we've come out of it a little bit. We're starting to do the 90s throwback, which is immensely stressful. Um, <laughs> I was waiting to it. hear, yeah, I was waiting uh, to hear who covered the Wallflowers covering David Bowie on the uh, Godzilla soundtrack. I was just like waiting, like, please don't tell me like the 1975 cover Deeper Underground or I will kill myself. <laughs> no, the National decided to cover uh, Brain Stew. Go you to missed, hell. You missed it. <laughs> So, uh, but what's interesting about this movie is the 80s, our sort of 80s throwback hadn't started yet. It was a few years out. This film was bookended in 1997 and 1999 by Austin Powers films. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and those were so, like very like 60s heavy. So Yes, and when you think about, uh, for my girls listening, what was in the Delia's catalogs and the malls were these very 60s, like bright 60s uh, shift dresses, A-line dresses, go-go boots, um, really like the Brit power that we started to see with the Spice Girls, the Union Jack dresses. Um, you start to see real 60s throwback um, in the shapes of, of like, uh, like inflatable furniture in these bright, bold colors, like bright primaries. And then a little later um, with... Uh, neons, oranges and yellows and greens, paisley, all of that. So to have a movie about the 80s was a little a little obscure. It was a little trendsetty. Like they hadn't we hadn't really like kicked that into high gear just yet. Yeah, we were still doing the uh the 60s out of out of Austin Powers and it was great cuz I did I did go back and watch uh Austin Powers the spy who shagged me for reasons that are going to become really apparent in a few minutes uh <laughs> for anyone who knows me or follows me on Twitter but uh I was amazed because I distinctly remember like going to the mall and seeing those kind of clo- those types of clothes mm-hmm. yeah. on mannequins and so it's 
it's interesting that they thought, yes, let's set a movie in the 80s in between these two extremely swinging 60s London films that were immensely pop, so popular that they they had sort of changed fashion. And this we're starting to see again, the second Brit wave uh, with with Blur, with Oasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like wow. right on the tail end of that whole set of that whole kind of scene. Um, yeah. And then also keep in mind that like when I mentioned VH1 earlier, like the VH1, like I love the 80s stuff that they used to do. That didn't start until like the early 2000s. So this was even like yeah. ahead of that. So I guess yeah, so. I guess if you really want to blame 80s nostalgia on anything, I guess you can blame this movie for giving people like VH1 the go ahead to do crap like that. Yeah. Like they picked so. it up from me. Like this isn't really like such an egregious example of it, but this kind of gave them the go ahead to do that stuff. Kind of, yeah. <sighs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. So, But um, following the montage, yes. uh, while they're in the car, uh, they're playing uh, Elvis Costello's Every Day I Write the Book, which is on Punch the Clock. I'm giving you This was my first exposure to Elvis Costello. And I've always, I love this song. Um, I listened to it a lot in college. It reminded me of uh, my college professor, uh, specifically the line, all your compliments and your cutting remarks are captured here in my quotation marks because no one can make me feel better or cut me down to size like that guy. And, but it was one of those, Elvis Costello for me was a series of false starts. Because I really liked this song, and I kept kind of trying, and it never quite landed. And then that same professor put um, Crimes of Paris from Blood and Chocolate, 1986's Blood and Chocolate, on a mix for me. And I was like, okay, this is good. And then that sort of another set of false starts. And it really wasn't until about 2017 when I got, when I got to see Elvis Costello in concert. He was playing nearby. Tickets were cheap, but I thought, this guy's a legend. Maybe this will finally be the year I'm like really good into Elvis Costello. And it was great. He played a lot of stuff off Imperial Bedroom, which I've really have come to love. And he, when he played this, which of course he was going to play, it's a huge hit. It was just, the, it felt like all things in the universe came together. <laughs> like right there. And I have been obsessed with Elvis Costello ever since but uh no I, I read a little bit about this song and apparently he wrote this song as kind of a songwriting exercise just to see if he could <laughs> which like if this is the song that comes out of an exercise like man i need to start exercising more yeah and it's, it's really not, it is it is I very mean, good it's very clever and very well constructed and and like i wish more i guess uh like rock pop kind of love songs were written like this yeah and it's it's so Sort of, because it's not, it's not a love song, but it's not quite a breakup song. It's just this very it's, complicated it's like a, look of... Yeah, it's like a relationship kind of song. On relationships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, he usually plays this, um, there's usually like two or three songs where you sort of know the concert's coming down. Um, I've heard him do this with Radio Radio and Pump mm-hmm. It Up. And you, once he plays this, you know that uh, what's so funny about Peace, Love, and Understanding is coming up. You're like, damn it, the show's over. <laughs> and, and like if you're lucky like when i saw him at oh my gang uh this was 
this was in his third encore. But um, when he played it at uh, Turning Stone, I was like, the concert's over already? Really? <laughs> wow. So, play a brilliant mistake. But uh, I know I'm, I'm so, I'm so stoked. I can't wait. So it's going to be great. It's going to, yeah, that, that sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. He'll, he'll play this. I will, I will live tweet it. So yes. Oh, I, yeah. I just, I really, I really, really, really love Elvis Costello and uh, the wedding singer is responsible for that. That's, Thanks, that, Adam that's, Sandler. that's, <laughs> well, that's, that's what the power of a great set movie and a great soundtrack can do is like introduce you to, to artists that you otherwise would never have gotten into. Yeah, and, and I'm it, glad this is that for you. Like, yes, amazing. and it took so fucking long. I, you really, I feel like you really have to like be in your 30s. I think maybe maybe it's earlier for men can like get into Elvis Costello early on, but for for I don't know, just like you 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 can't be young. You have to like have some life on you, mm-hmm. I guess, and like finally be bitter and you have and to angry have a, few, and a have few, a hot dude. Ask. You have to find the few gray hairs and be sad about that first. So then after uh, after Elvis Costello, there's like a 10 minute chunk of the movie where literally no music plays. And I started to have a panic attack. I know. I was like, did I get the right version? It's weird. Yeah. It's a really like not even like like background orchestra music, like actual movie music, like no music, nothing at all. It's so strange. But like this is the scene where or this is the part of the movie where Julia and Robbie have a, like a practice kiss and they realize, oh, they're in love. Yeah. And like you really you couldn't find a song about a kiss yeah exactly like th- this is like a perfect place for any hall literally any hall and oats song yeah and it's funny because um actually as as we're talking about this and i'm thinking about the scene i'm weirdly hearing like the main theme from tommy boy like in my head over the scene <laughs> it works it does kind of work put, you're right play, play a clip yeah yeah it does <laughs> holy shit <laughs> Holy shnikes. Holy shnikes, you're right. So then after this scene, uh, Julia and and Glenn and Robbie, and what's the other girl's name? It's Christine Taylor. Holly. Holly, thank you. Yeah, Holly. Holly, go on a double date to a nightclub. Where and then they're just like, shoot, we didn't have any music, so they cram like four songs into this scene. This one scene, yeah. They're making up for lost time by playing... Five, if you count the Miami Vice theme. Yes, uh, but they're... But so the first song that you hear is uh, Blue, Blue Monday by New Order. Which... And this introduced me to New Order, not mm-hmm. my favorite New Order song. That's Temptation from Something Wild. Well, let's go ahead and play a little bit of that because we absolutely have to. Mandated by Law. How does it feel to treat me like you do? This song, I feel like, is cinematic shorthand for "Hey man, it's the '80s." It's the '80s, but we're the cool '80s. This is the cool '80s because you can play this song, and everybody immediately knows, like, all right, it's the '80s. There's electro music playing. There's uh, people dancing. There's neon. Let's do it. Yeah, there's fishnets and lace, and like it immediately plops you into a certain place and time, and like it's just such a signpost for like 1985 i guess which it's 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 predates that but still yeah it it definitely um it it cements you there and this is and i think because it sort of has that that stigma um 
I, I prefer things like Bizarre Love Triangle. Uh, they have a song called Regret that's really, really good. This one also, there's like mixes of it that go on for like 10 days. And you're like, I understand cocaine <laughs> now. Yeah. How do people dance to New Order without cocaine? You can't. Nobody's physically fit enough to dance to a New Order song like on its own without cocaine. Oddly enough, my first encounter with Blue Monday wasn't even hearing the song. Go on. It's a joke in Shaun of the Dead. The scene where Shaun and Ed are throwing records at a zombie because they think that's going to work. <laughs> and they're going through Shaun's record collection. And uh, Ed just grabs Blue Monday, throws it at the zombie, and it shatters. And then Shaun goes, oh my god, that was an original pressing. Ooh, I didn't, that, at that, that point, I didn't know what Blue Monday was yet, but like... That was like, oh, that must be important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, New Order is very, very cool. And uh, New Order is what formed out of uh, Joy Division after Ian Curtis uh, died by suicide. Yes, and uh, we first encountered Joy Division on the Crow soundtrack by way of Nine Inch Nails doing uh, Dead Souls. It all comes together. It's all starting to click. It's all starting to connect. This is the magic of the OST party. Yes, Bernard Sumner of uh, New Order went on to form a band called Electronic uh, with Johnny Marr, and we hear them on the Cool World soundtrack. Man, this is I told you we were going to talk a lot about Cool World tonight. (laughs) Hey, I'm not complaining. (laughs) Totally not complaining. Uh, But moving on, so the next song that we hear in the nightclub scene is David Bowie's China Girl. So, which uh, is a cover of an Iggy Pop song. Yes, so I guess now we should get into, is now a good time to get into Under the Covers? Yeah, let's stop here. Um, So we've actually got uh, three on here. And uh, the first one, of course, is uh, David Bowie performing China Girl. And I think this is the version that most people know. I'll ruin everything you are. This is the one that I had heard before, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know it was an Iggy Pop song. I didn't either, to be um, honest. It appears on The Idiot in 1977, but um, David Bowie made it famous on Let's Dance. Right. This is my favorite David Bowie song. There's a great uh, story that Nile Rogers, because Nile Rogers produced the song. There's a great story that Nile Rogers tells about writing the song with David Bowie, or this version, rather. Where he talks about how he just kind of assumed that the song was about doing speedballs because China it China is China White or heroin and girl means cocaine. <laughs> so he just naturally assumed that, that the song is about speedballing. And so he like he intentionally wrote sort of the wrote and arranged the music to be this sort of upbeat, like pop version of a song about cocaine because he thought that oh, oh that's a super David Bowie, super ironic. And then David Bowie was was extremely into it because yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so huh, yeah. Niall Rogers uh, accidentally knows what he's doing. I mean, he he really absolutely knows what he's doing, but like sometimes these happy accidents just happen. That's 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 a wild story. Niall well, Rogers, of course, produced the Earth Girls Reezy soundtrack. Yes, he did. Yeah, see, all these connections are starting to happen. So, um, <laughs> it's it's like we did it on purpose. Yes, which we actually didn't. Um, 
so yeah, this is this is played in the nightclub, and uh, during that scene, he sort of mentions, uh, "Oh, David Bowie's coming to town," which uh, I haven't watched this movie since David Bowie passed, and like I got like this little core of sadness. Oh, like, uh-uh. David Bowie's never coming to town. I'm never gonna get to see him. So, um, also on this, uh, we have a couple other covers. Um, we have I. Uh, Money, That's What I Want, performed by the Flying Lizards. And this was a cover, it's most famously done by the Beatles in 1963, but it was originally written in 1959 by Barrett Strong. It was the first hit for Barry Gordy's Motown enterprise. And fun fact, the Barrett Strong version appears in Happy Gilmore. Yeah, so this is a song that Adam Sandler really, really likes. Yes. (laughs) So, um... I actually like this cover version a lot, too. It's, It's really oddly uh kind of hypnotic the way like the very robotic like lyrics go by i love it yeah i i kind of i prefer this version too um i'm a big fan i'm not a huge fan of the beatles but i'm a big fan of beatles covers Mm. um susie and the banshees uh cover dear prudence on hyena and it's amazing it's just it's so lush and gorgeous and so i'm i'm here for uh for beatles covers but um, the the biggest cover on this, um, I mean, other than uh, than Ellen Dow performing "Rapper's Delight," uh, <laughs> is um, the the sort of lead single from this the the kind of the 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 big radio hit from the album. Yeah, I guess um, is a cover of "Video Killed the Radio Star." <laughs> It's by the Presidents of the United States of America, which is an incredibly 1998 thing to say. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, it's the last song they they recorded before they broke up. Really? Yes. That's or, a bummer. They, they they broke up like the in the 90s, and then they came back together late, later in the 2000s as like a reunion tour thing. But this was like the last like new thing they recorded in their heyday. Yes. Now, I've always known this as a Buggles song. I think mm-hmm. we all have. Of um, course. The Buggles version appears on, uh, it, it appears in Empire Records. It's not on the soundtrack. But this song was written by Trevor Horn, Jeff Downs, and Bruce Woolley in 1978. Uh, Bruce Woolley's Camera Club, which featured Thomas Dolby on keyboards, Whoa. recorded the first version for their album English Garden. Huh. And then Horn and Downs I uh, formed the Buggles and recorded it, and that's sort of the the most famous version. But I really kind of like this version because yeah. I am late '90s trash. Well, we all are. Yeah, which is why we have this podcast. I like that very crunchy garage rock sound. Yeah, it's got a very kind of stripped down sort of feel to it. Like yeah. the the Buggles song, the one everybody knows, is very extremely produced and has lots of fun effects in it. And this is just like guitar, bass, and drums, basically. Yeah, and or- they play with some of those effects 
a little yeah. later on. But or, or, um, or rather, excuse me, because it's the presidents we're talking about. It's a a, a bass guitar and a git bass and drums because that's how they roll. Yes, <laughs> and so it it's kind of a, a funky cover. And what's great about it is that it's not an ironic cover. It's a straightforward cover on of a of a great song. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's nothing like it's not Pennywise being Indeed. assholes about it. Yeah, it's not me first and the gimme gimmies just doing it for shits yeah. and giggles. Like there's only a, a, so many artists that I would want to hear do this song because it's it's very like it's like, this song is like peak nerd rock. Mm-hmm. So like if it's not the presidents, I guess. I might want to hear They Might Be Giants cover the song, but otherwise, eh, just kind of leave it alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so um, so that's, it's kind of a weird inclusion in this one, though. I'm not really sure why they picked, like, of all the 80s songs, because he's not a radio star, there's no video involved, so I'm not really sure. I guess it's just because it's such an ode to, like, the MTV era of music. That's the only explanation I, guess. I can think of. Yeah, so in a way, it's the the song is more for the soundtrack than the movie. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, which is kind of a neat a neat way to look at it. And it plays that. it plays over the end credits, so like it doesn't feature in the film, but once those credits start, bam, there it is. Yes. So, um, but and it is the first track on the first album. Yes. So. Uh, and the and the music the music video is kind of fun too. Like if you've ever seen that, I haven't. Um, it's it's basically the band playing the song in different sort of uh, eras of music. Like it starts out with them playing on kind of an Ed Sullivan show sort of stage, and then it gets into them playing it as basically as a punk band, and then as a new wave. Okay, band. you're right. I have seen this. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of surprised that it wasn't them playing like the wedding venue. That would make a lot of sense. The movie. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. But no, they they went with a, a different uh, route to it. And then Godzilla walks by and somebody gets groceries. (laughs) Of course. Naturally. It's 1998, of course. And then the dude from the President of the United States of America turns into a dove. Who cares? And then there's a sinking ship. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Fuck 1998. And then Bruce Willis shows up in a space suit. I don't know. Yeah. So (sighs) we're getting very angry at an era we kind of love. But um, yeah, so that's that's, uh, Under the Covers, which I think needs a theme song. But but no, so going back to the nightclub. Mm Mm-hmm. We've actually got two more songs in here. Wow. Um, we have Private Idaho by the B-52s. Mm-hmm. This is my favorite B-52s song. This is where I sort of first really got into them. I knew uh, Love Shack mm-hmm. and Deadbeat Club. I knew the album Cosmic Thing, uh, as we talked about on uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. But this one is off of Wild Planet. Which is such a fantastically bizarre album that you kind of need to listen to it on its own. It's really worth digging into. I'm going to admit, I don't know as much about the B-52s as I thought I did. And now I guess I need to go do some research, listen to some of these albums. Yeah, I actually, uh, I was invited onto the Discord and Rhyme podcast to talk about this album. So, um, and that's actually in their, their most recent episodes. You can go listen to that. You can listen to me ramble about the B-52s more. Yeah, that's going to be in the show notes. Yeah. This is such a, like I said, this is such a weird song. Any B-52 song is going to be bizarre. And, (laughs) because I'm not, I mean, is this song about like nuclear war? Is it about Keanu Reeves? What is it about? I don't know. It's great. (laughs) 
So also anything with Fred Schneider barking at you is top notch. Oh yeah, that's that's just that's gold. <laughs> Anytime you can get Fred Schneider doing anything, it's gold. Yes. So um, and then when they're outside the bar, um, for some reason, this is a scene I don't get. Um, Julia drinks too much and uh, goes and you know throws up in the bathroom. She doesn't drink, so why is she drinking like this? It's a scene that doesn't make any sense to her character. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's one of those scenes where like okay, they needed to get her away so that Robbie could discover that Glenn is cheating on her, and then they have to to play that out, and then you discover oh shit, Glenn is the kind of guy who would have a DeLorean. God damn it. Yeah. So <gasps> Glenn is Ernest Klein. Bum bum I knew bum. It. But actually, while they're standing outside the bar, uh, the psychedelic furs love my way is playing and this song rules and is great and it got me into the psychedelic furs do you see a pattern here i see a little bit of a pattern here so hey let's take a quick uh, pit stop and listen to some psychedelic furs Um, this is actually the only song that appears twice in the film because later when they're in another bar it plays uh, a second time mm. and i don't know why you'd, you'd think they would save like the 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 refrain for like a song that actually means something to the movie yeah i don't know or that's, just... that's an odd choice yeah so um i don't have anything yeah. to say about this one uh so i'm gonna let you have it Oh no! It's just it's it's fine. You know, it's it's a good song. Are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... They're they're great. It's just I when listening to the, when writing my notes for this film, I actually missed this one. But yeah, it's a good song. So let's uh, yeah, let's move on. Couple more. We've got uh, Huey Lewis. Do you believe in love? Also not on the soundtrack. Um, and uh, everybody's got a hungry heart by Bruce Springsteen plays in the bar um, after. Robbie, uh, you know, he's, yeah. he, he wants to confess that he's in love with her, but he kind of can't. I always, I, this, I hate this song. I'm going to be like perfectly honest. It's, I hate this song. I don't think it's anybody's favorite Bruce Springsteen song. In my head, whenever I hear this song, because I'm at like the grocery store or TJ Maxx, mm-hmm. I always sing it as everybody's got a hungry horse. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we get rid of Bruce Springsteen really fast, um, and we get into perhaps the most important musical development ever, which is the first time that teenage high school Libby heard the Smiths on How Soon Is Now. Let's play that. Let's share with everybody. This is like the most Smith song that has ever existed. This is like tattooed on Morrissey's heart, probably next to a swastika or whatever he's into nowadays. <laughs> but uh, he's the worst. But um, this. Are... Sorry, go on. No, are you ready for my my like blazing hot take for the night? I am ready. I listen to this song and all I can hear is bent by Matchbox 20. Oh my god. 
<laughs> what is because wrong with you? I'm, You're such a 90s baby. I am such a 90s baby. And also, I'm a white boy from the South. You're my 90s trash baby. I love you. <laughs> Little 90s trash boy. I'm a 90s um, trash baby and I know what and I like Matchbox 20. No, no, no. It's just when I hear uh when I hear the Smith song like all, all I can hear is like the guitar bit from from Bent and like God damn it, now I'm never going to be able to unhear that. <laughs> I've broke Libby's brain. My you mission did, is complete. And I was complete. about to tell like my big story about how the Smiths like changed my life and you had to ruin it with Matchbox 20. Well, fine. Let's just go on to the last scene. Who cares? All right, that's fine with me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad I could. Sh- I I wasn't planning to short circuit your like Smith's brain, <laughs> but it happened. Like You're right, I, it totally I, totally rips it off. But which yeah, which all I can think now is oh yeah, Matchbox Twenty totally ripped off the Smiths. <laughs> Seems like something Rob Thomas would do. Oh yeah, totally. So, well, yeah, we get this adorable performance of uh, Rapper's Delight. By yes. uh, Sugar Hill Gang. Uh, Ellen Dow is really the MVP of this movie. You know, the sort of joke of the scene is like, oh, here's an old lady rapping, which I, I feel like in the day of of YouTube, there's probably a bajillion old ladies rapping. So but this was a novelty in 1998 when we were all starved for entertainment. Yeah, this was a this was a big deal on the level of like CG dancing baby in Ally McBeal. Big deal. Oh, you yeah. Know? Like, this was we everywhere. could talk about the Ally McBeal soundtrack if we wanted to die of sadness. If we wanted to really torture ourselves, yeah, hell, hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> no, let's not. But um, <laughs> self-flagellation is is a great pastime. Let me tell you. Um, yes. So the big scene here is uh, <laughs> they're gonna fly to Vegas, uh, Glenn and Julia, so that they can get married in Vegas and. Uh, Robbie has to get on the plane and there's only a seat left in first class. And who's in first class? But Billy Idol, who sang White Wedding all the way back in the beginning of the film. Again, that's called foreshadowing. This movie is great. It should be taught in film school. The Billy Idol. Not an impersonator, not a joke. The actual Billy Idol is in this movie. And it feels like kind of a magic trick. Like even in 1998, People kind of forgot who Billy Idol was, but guess what? He's still out there, and he's still awesome. Yes, and uh, he has this great bit about uh, uh, how we- you know men like Glenn. Oh, well, let's go to a clip. Yeah, Glenn doesn't deserve her. All he cares about possessions, fancy cars, CD players. Even women are possessions to him. Yeah. See, Billy Idol gets it. I don't know why she doesn't get it. <laughs> I, I actually have made a clip of like see billy idol gets it i don't know why she doesn't put it on mix cds <laughs> so it just cracks me up and he plays uh the song grow old with you that he sings to drew barrymore based on something she had said uh back when they were listening to every little thing she does is magic in the ice cream parlor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they kiss and it's great and glenn gets all mad and billy idol runs over with a drink cart and a man gets up and says, don't you dare talk to Billy Idol that way. And it's amazing. It's awesome. The best part about this scene is like you can you can tell how excited Billy Idol is to be included in something like this. Like he's having a ball. I know. I and, know. And this ending is so corny and I'm like a thousand percent here for it. 
it's it's super duper corny, but it, it works. And part of it's because like I still can't get over Billy Idol being in the movie at all. I know, it's just like, and he's like very he's like extremely Billy Idol, like with the vest. And it's not like holy shit, that guy looks like Billy Idol, like in a business suit. Like he is, he, he is. looks like he just walked out of the White Wedding video. <laughs> and I'm gonna say something here that might be controversial, but I honestly believe it. Billy Idol's the best actor in this movie. I think that is. Well, it's tough because Ellen Dow is pretty fucking great. She's great. And honestly, I like nothing against Drew Barrymore because she's good in this movie, too. But like, you can tell Billy Idol's trying like a thousand percent harder than Adam Sandler is. Oh, yeah. Um, honestly, there should be more Billy Idol on the soundtrack. The thing with the Grow Old With You is that it's on the second album, which seems like a little bit of a of a cash grab that they didn't put it on the first. They're like, no, motherfuckers, you're buying both of them. Yeah, and I because they weren't like, packaged together, you had to buy them separately. Right, and that's how, like why they they were both like separately on the charts. Like one was outperforming the other. Mm-hmm. But like, I kind of feel like if you were if you were to construct your own wedding singer soundtrack out of all these pieces and parts, you would put uh, "Somebody Kill Me" up front, like near the beginning of the soundtrack, and then put "Grow Old with You" at the very very end. And that's what's uh, a little bit baffling about this soundtrack, because we talk about it as a whole, um, is that they're not in order of yeah. how they appear in the movie. No, there's really no rhyme or reason to like how they place any of the songs in the soundtrack. It doesn't really mean it doesn't flow like a soundtrack would. It's just mm-hmm. a collection of songs. Yeah, and they did release this on vinyl, but they only released the first album. Huh. Which. You'd think that a vinyl re-release would be the space to package both of them. Yeah, like a, that, that's like a perfect double album right there. That's, yeah. That's like a slam I mean, dunk. honestly, and, and to include things like uh, Don't Stop Believing um, and Boys Don't Cry uh, and, you know, to even get, again, some of those skits in there like Ellen Dow, like Somebody Kill Me, to get John Lovitz doing Ladies Night. And actually, the last song we hear in the film is uh steve buscemi's band playing true mm-hmm. yeah and he i mean i play a clip but he really is the best damn guitar player in the whole world Yeah, it's he, such a he weird totally callback. I love it. I know he's he's great. Like he made good on his promise. I guess. <laughs> Glad to see him doing all right. He he rocks that ruffled shirt. He does. Honestly, Steve like, Buscemi is a national fucking treasure. Like that's one of the like one of the honestly like, great things about like Adam Sandler's sort of film catalog is that he does right by his friends, especially Steve Buscemi, who's just this weird looking dude, but he just can't help but pop up in all these movies and he's always the best part of all those movies yeah because he's so delightful and just like gives his all and everything and he's he's a great actor and he is a very 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 funny man i think most people know him as this creepy dude from like fargo or i don't know like boardwalk empire or something like that but then when you see him cut loose in a film like this, you kind of remember like, oh, right, he's just he's just a person. He's just a guy and he's having fun. Yeah. And he has he has great comic timing. Oh, absolutely. And uh, he shows up on 30 Rock 
a bunch of times and as a, as a private eye and just steals this scene every single time. He really, we do not deserve Steve Buscemi. We really don't. We don't. So is there anything on here that we didn't cover that you Man, want to talk a little bit about? Honestly, I don't know. I think we got all of it. Uh, <laughs> I think we covered everything, which is amazing. Literally every song mm-hmm. on the Wedding Singer soundtrack. Um, This one also on the second uh, album had Space Age Love Song by A Flock of Seagulls, which I could not pinpoint in the movie so i'm guessing it's at the airport because the guy has a flock of seagulls haircut if you know please uh please let us know at ost party on twitter hit us up but if you um, made the wedding singer or are a member of flock of seagulls and you know please let us know um space age love song is my favorite flock of seagulls song really yeah i have it on um huh. i have the uh no i take that back I- it is no i was gonna say i have it on 45 i don't i have a uh, photograph but no space age love song it's a great, it's a really, really, really good song. If you haven't paid attention to it, it's it's worth listening to. Not enough people know more than one uh, Flock of Seagulls songs to be I able know. to say something like that. And again, that's why, that's one of the, the highlights of this soundtrack is that it 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 didn't go with I Ran So Far Away. It went with Space Age Love Song. It went with Private yeah. Idaho. It went with Love Stinks. It uh, the Just Can't Get Enough by Depeche Mode is on the second album, my first Depeche Mode. And yeah. that's really like very bright Depeche Mode because when you think of Depeche Mode you generally think of things like Personal Jesus or mm-hmm. Enjoy the Silence which are very gloomy but Just Can't Get It Up is like the brightest like you could play that at a wedding it's I think I did play it at my wedding or at least I requested it <laughs> so as you can imagine I controlled the music so hard at my wedding I ruled that with an iron fist <laughs> as you should as you should Okay, so like the last thing I'll say about this soundtrack is I was looking at some reviews for the soundtrack just to see what other uh, other like-minded people were saying about it, and AllMusic.com, or rather, and AllMusic.com had an, an interesting take, which was that they said the soundtrack was kind of a little anachronistic because by 1985, New Wave was over, which I guess is true. You got to remember where this movie takes place. It takes place in like bumble shit Illinois, and they don't know that New Wave is over yet. Also, New Wave will never die. So, eat That's, a fart, all music. That 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 too. But like, New Wave rules. When you when you don't live in New York like I do, you don't know that culture has moved on from things that are cool. Like we we're not gonna get that stuff for another like year and a half. <laughs> like we. We like to think that culture moves at like a lightning speed because we have the internet now. But guess what? You know, uh, culture doesn't work that way anymore. Or no, it's, it never worked that way. When I was in Oklahoma a few months back, uh, I went to the mall and they were playing 90s music. And I don't know if they were doing it like ironically <laughs> or if they were doing it because Oklahoma hasn't changed that much. And either way, it was terrifying because I instantly felt a thousand years old. I was like a week and a half away from my 36th birthday, and I've never felt older. So Oklahoma either just got over Chris Daughtry or they haven't yet heard about Chris Daughtry. I don't know, (laughs) but it was not good. It was depressing. I don't know. I don't know. All all I'm really saying is that like Bumbleshit Illinois is like, as I like to call it, doesn't get everything cool right away, and it takes a little while. So I think The Wedding Singer kind of encapsulates that kind of perfectly. Yeah, also, New Wave is awesome. 
Yeah, but you know what I'm getting. New at. Wave is the best thing we ever had. Yeah. New I Wave do. is awesome. Um so what are we doing uh uh next week? Or what are we doing what are we doing next episode? Uh, on our next episode, it's time to take another road trip. It's the nineties road trip is in full swing because we are going to we, we are going to cover uh 1996's Beavis and Butthead Do America. Oh yes. This is great. Uh, I actually, oh, I keep almost buying this soundtrack on vinyl, so this might be my, <laughs> this might be the excuse I need. Perfect excuse. You should do a record Saturday of it. I will. It would I go over it. extremely well, I'll bet. Yes, indeed. So, all right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the OST Party. Uh, find us on Twitter at OST Party or email us suggestions, comments, compliments or other remarks at ostpartypod at gmail.com joe where can they find you uh you can find me on twitter at cordial wombat and if you're so inclined uh, i have another podcast where i talk about christmas movies all year round called christmas creeps uh you can find that on twitter at christmas creeps or go to christmascreeps.com libby where can they find you you can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. Or you can listen to me on the Shattered Shield podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that just about wraps it up. So for OST Party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. I said hip hop. I hip it to the hip to the hip hip hop. You don't stop the rock to the bang bang boogie. Say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie the beat. Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. And need the groove and my friends are going to try to move your feet. See I am one of mine and I'd like to say hello.